Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. The Athletic. Mark Chapman, welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic, alongside us as ever from The Athletic, football news reporter Matt Slater. And coming up today, we're going to discuss the landmark multi-million pound deal between the English Football Association and UK broadcasters to screen matches in the Women's Super League. This is the Business of Sport from The Athletic. So the podcast this week is all about the new UK television deal for the Women's Super League. It's worth £7 million per year over three seasons. It will see the league generate more revenue than any other women's domestic league in the world. And before we bring our guests in, Matt, just take us briefly through the deal and the numbers. Yeah, well, as you've described, the numbers are, are very, very, very impressive. It's been described as a landmark deal, and I think that's that's fair. Um, seven million a year, as you say, three-year deal, starts next season. It's with Sky and BBC. Um, Sky have committed to show at 44 games a season, at least 35 of those on their main football channels. The BBC will show 22 games, of which at least 18 will be on BBC One or BBC Two. The rest of the, the games will be on the FA Player. So the whole the whole season will be available for fans. As you mentioned, it's they, they, they're saying it's going to be the most watched women's sports league in the world. So it's going to beat the women's NBA. It's going to be more watched than the, the US Women's uh, National Women's Soccer League. It's a better TV deal. Than those as well. About 75% of the money will go to WSL teams, 25% to the championship. So there's a sort of kind of trickle down the pyramid effect. Kickoff slots are quite attractive as well, quite interesting. Trying to find a niche for the for, for women's football. Uh, Friday evenings, uh, there's an early slot, I think on Saturdays, 11.30. Early slot on Sunday, 12.30. And an evening slot, 18.30. So they seem to have, you know, really thought this through. I understand there was an option to have a slightly longer deal, but maybe we'll get into that with the guests as to why they didn't do that. But uh, yeah, look, this is the first proper TV deal that women's football's had. It's the first time the women's football rights have been sold separately from men. So it really, it really is something, something, something special. There is an awful lot to get into with this deal and with the future of the women's game. And we're going to do that on the pod with Kelly Simmons, FA Director of the Women's Professional Game and Beck Smith, Strategic Consultant at Copper 90, CEO of Crux Sports, a company that supports players through their careers. Also played the game, captained her country New Zealand at two World Cups and two Olympics. And because we are incredibly generous, we always point people in the direction of other podcasts and you host the Players Podcast, uh, which you can get... Uh, on BBC Sounds, uh, amongst other places as well. So they are our guests. Kelly, let me start with you. What What's the most important thing about this deal, do you think? Audience numbers. I think, you know, when we looked at the strategy, the unbundling of the rights for the first time, how we packaged it, you know, it was deliberately targeted at free-to-air partnership that would really drive audience and a pay-per-view that would help really drive revenue. Um, obviously, both play a role in both, but I think when you look uh, at the number of games, the slots um, and the broadcasters, it gives us the opportunity to possibly be um, the most watched league after the Premier League. 
you know, this huge audience potential. And when you're in a build, which we are in, in a build phase in terms of the Women's Super League, uh, what, you know, what a fantastic opportunity to grow our fan base and grow engagement and interest and awareness. And, and obviously all those other benefits that spin off from that around inspiring girls and women to play and all of those great things. But I think audience, the audience potential of this is absolutely huge. Bex, obviously you have lots of different hats, as we mentioned. So, I mean, you could pick whichever hat you want to wear here, but as you as a former player, let's say, what impresses you most about this deal? I think it's that it makes it most attractive for players. So when you've seen the players that have already come over when the NWSL stopped, for example. So the Tobin Heath, the Kristen Presses coming over to Man United, Man City. I mean, so many American players coming over as world champions. What it does is it, it, it shows that there's such an injection of cash and investment and people caring about the league, which means that it's going to make the league more competitive. Also lower down, you'd mentioned, um, Matt, that a lot of the money will trickle down into the championship too, but also into, you know, the lower half of the table so that it means that the league ideally becomes more competitive so that every weekend, every game you're playing, you're going to get more competitive matches, which means that you're going to become a better player. Uh, And, you know, that's one of the sort of downfalls I think of the French league right now you have Lyon who wins everything in Champions League but when you when you play day in day out or week in week out and you win 13-0 it's just not as fun to play and not as competitive and you're not improving as a player so from my player's hat I think it's incredible because it means that the standard of football and coaching and refereeing and pitches, you know, are are all going to increase. And that makes it just more fun to play. When we talk about the trickle-down effect of the money, so you you went obviously further than the league below the Women's Super League. You then talked about officials and facilities and so on and so forth. The the trickle-down of the broadcast deal will be felt all the way will it be felt all the way down to my daughter's under sevens team? That's all we've um agreed to split. Um, in terms of the club's revenue share, 75-25 Women's Super League, Women's Championship. We thought that was really important because we want to develop the championship. We want to make sure we we support the investment of those clubs because we want clubs to be able to come up. We want a strong pyramid. Um, And so the sort of future investment in that is really, really important. I think the cash won't get to the girls' grassroots clubs. That's different funding, you know, through the Football Foundation and the FA. And there's big ambitions there. To, um, to get to allow every girl to play football in schools through our partnership with Barclays and to really drive the growth of girls' football. But I think what this will do is this really mainstreams women's football. So for all those years where girls were told it wasn't a sport for girls or it wasn't the sport that they should play, it's going to be so visible. And I think, you know, it, the quality of the football, the fantastic players you've got can only inspire this generation to take up football. So I think it's huge in terms of the interest and and impact it can have on the grassroots game. On the deal itself, before Matt comes in, was it an easy deal to do? And by that, I mean, when you went to tender, were you, I mean, was there a bun fight (laughs) where maybe there hasn't been in previous years? Yeah, I obviously can't talk about specific uh Fun fights <laughs> in the race. Uh, but it was competitive you know that it, it, i think that's what you're asking really yeah. you know was well i'm, I'm asking yeah. basically kelly was there a lot of interest yeah. did, you, did you notice yeah, even in was. what has happened yeah. because of even in the last four years how mm. attention has changed coverage has changed did it make it a more competitive process with more interest than it than five years ago yeah, without doubt. Now, of course, we've, this is the first time we've unbundled the rights and sold them separately. But, you know, we were confident in that, that there would be significant interest and that would really help drive drive up the value of the deals. So, yes, you know, it was competitive. And I think that's testament to the the quality uh, of the Women's Super League and, and the work by so many to make it such, you know, one of the best leagues in the world and such a great product. Can I jump in there? Because I think you're you're super modest, Kelly, as always, but you guys as the FA put so much behind this. So to be able to put it out, have teams out there, have other people working with you guys to explain the value as well and market it as a product that is valuable, I think helped make, helped create that competitiveness. And without that sort of drive from the FA in those decision-making bodies to actually put it out there as a product that is valuable, not just unbundle it and go, anyone want it, but actually really drive that those sales forward. 
I don't think that you guys would have had the success you had. So that that's a massive credit to the FA and you and your team, I think, which you would never spout about on a podcast or anywhere publicly, probably, but you worked hard for that. <laughs> <laughs> I think well, a couple of things on that. And, and thank you. Um, the, um, I think the fact that, you know, it's been well documented that the FA, like most bodies has been through a sort of tough year in terms of cuts and, and some 300 million of, of cuts over the four years. And the one area it protected in terms of its investment of around 7 million a year was in, in the professional women's game. And I think that's because we've, we're all aligned on a real ambition, the FA and the clubs around wanting the best women's league in the world and genuinely believing that we can get there. And I think that sort of alignment and that, that new level of, of ambition, if you like, for the women's game has been re- really fundamental. Uh, and then obviously Barclays coming on board, I think, gave, gave great credibility to the women's super leagues, you know, a brand that's invested and being such a, a player in the, in the development of the men's game to come on board. I think that was a big statement uh, as well. And then you started to see clubs think, actually, there is a, there's a, this isn't just a sort of a, you know, a, an empty kind of bucket of where we keep chucking money in and we're not going to see any return down the line. I think, you know, the, the, the professional game strategy, the, the work that we've done to, to bring in new partners, this, obviously the overseas rights that we've announced over the last few months has all given confidence that we can grow this into a sustainable professional sport in the long term. I know you don't want to get into the buns, but you know, this is, this is what we talk about on this pod. Visibility versus behind a paywall, right? You're talking to the athletic, come on. So it's, it's a conundrum that the golf, cricket, rugby union, thinking about it right now, you've gone for this split, this hybrid, this best of all worlds which I think is great. And I think we are starting to see that even with cricket, the hundred, you know, you get, you get a bit of both, right? You get the nice big cash check from the pay, from the pay TV company. And then you get, you get the visibility the BBC provides. My question to you though, is could you have got even more from Sky if you'd have given them exclusive rights? I don't know. I think strategy wise, top of the strategy was audience over revenue. Okay. Number one priority for the sport where it's at at the moment, the board were really clear, Women's Super League and Championship Board, audience is the most important. Revenue, of course, is crucial. <laughs> we all need revenue to grow the game. But um, if we don't get that wide exposure, then you know we, we, we can't build that audience and that level of engagement that the, sports need. the sport needs for its long, long-term health and sustainability. So it was deliberately packaged you know, in a way to try and drive both. And free to wear being a really, really key part of that. So it couldn't have worked out better for us, really, because, you know, we've got new revenue in, you know, we've got Sky who brings such great production, such great um, coverage, such credibility in terms of their, of how they deliver football. And of course, we've got BBC, which delivers huge audiences. So, you know, we've gone for the best of both worlds. But if, if you were to put my feet to the, the flames or... Um, then I'd say, you know, we would say, well, audience is absolutely was top number one on the strategy. Just with my BBC hat on, Kelly, can I also say that BBC producers are fantastic and there's some amazing on-screen talent as well. Anyhow, yeah, a few. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, good. No, of Excellent. course, of course, Mark. Sorry, yes, I didn't mean it in that way. <laughs> just said, just, just, no, 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 I was just saving my production team. That was all. I was just like, yeah, anyhow, go on, Mark. Are you not busy It was enough, a given, Mark. Mark. It was a given. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. going to ask about the, the the kickoff slots friday evenings and you've gone for an early one on saturday which which makes sense i mean would it be fair of me to say that you are trying to sort of carve out a bit of a niche you don't want to go up against the premier league ideally i guess head to head i also noticed something in the press release look this is the sort of thing that goes in press releases that you're thinking about younger audiences which of course everybody is that that saturday morning slot did make me think hold on a minute that's when my kids play football was that a concern? First of all, Sunday 12.30 is the most popular slot that everybody wants. Um, 
we are obviously it makes sense to try not to go up against uh, Premier League football. And we know from the research that, you know, people think, oh, you know, it's women's football, it's watched by women. Well, no, actually most the skew in women's sport audiences is men. Um, and, and we know that these, we've got these 6 million football followers, male skew, male and female, but male, male skew, who follow their club and are increasingly coming over and watching their women's section of their club. So taking a whole club view, they're a huge audience potential for us. And it doesn't make sense to put them up against the men's Premier League football that they're already watching in significant numbers. So we're trying to find a bit of space of our own. That Sunday slot, um, you know, great for Sky because it sits in that Super Sunday. You know, what a fantastic slot to have a WSL game. Um, and obviously BBC, it's, it's great for the BBC as well. We've often put games out through Red Button on Sundays. Um, so it's, it's just trying to find the volume of games and having potentially, you know, most weeks, three live games, just trying to find those other yeah. slots. I, I quite like the Friday night under the lights, you know, last week. It's a great time to, to watch the game. Saturday lunchtime, you know, we'll have to test them. We'll have to see what works, what works well in terms of audience numbers. You know, I think we're open-minded about it. I don't know what will how it would work television-wise, but actually, from some men's clubs in the past, and I'm going back to the 80s and 90s here, Friday night was a big one, certainly in the northwest where both me and Matt live. You know, Tranmere on a Friday night got big gates because they didn't put themselves up against Liverpool and Everton on a Saturday. Stockport County, the same in the Manchester region, didn't go up against United and City by playing on a Friday night. So actually, when we're eventually allowed... Making making Friday night the night where you can actually go down to your local women's team if you are local to them and watch the game rather than on telly, that's quite a big marketing plan I think that could work for them. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think what's really interesting too, as Kelly mentioned, is that the women's game is trying to find slots in a market that's already been created, and sort of dominated and saturated by men's football. So. That in and of itself is just an interesting phenomenon that, you know, the market's been built by men for men, you know, and, and so now the women has to somehow try to juggle itself in. And, and to Kelly's point, if you don't create a big enough audience, you're never going to be able to compete head to head, maybe for those potential bigger times that you can get. But from my players had again on Friday night probably is the best time to play as well, because you've, you know, you've trained, you normally have your big training on a Tuesday, let's say, and then well, unless you have champions league on a Wednesday, then Wednesday, Friday is a bit hard of a schedule, but that Friday night's really nice. Cause then you have the weekend sort of a little bit free, which you don't get as a footballer. So, and then, you know, looking at the habits of female football fans, they're, they're different from the men's game. And so we, as we know, the audience is much more diverse, um, a lot younger, as Kelly already mentioned. So that Friday night can be something that, like you say, becomes something that is a brand yeah. new phenomena for football fans of a different side of the game. Scheduling will be a big thing, won't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for the game in general going forward. And I, I, we often find this with a lot of sports in general, not not men's or women's sports, but sports in general to try and avoid where the Premier League schedule games. That's, you know, whether you run whether you run <laughs> yeah. the, the, the netball or whether you run Super League, you'd have to try and avoid mm. where, where the Premier League is. We started that really pre-COVID when um, last season, when, when, when fans were in big focus around when there wasn't men's Premier League football and it was international men's windows and, mm. and the clubs were great and the games in their, the main or men's stadia, you know, we saw some big, big crowds uh, and that was all part, again, of trying to yeah, schedule away from, from the Premier League because it's so huge um, and gets such big audiences and such big interest. And, and so scheduling is, a, is without doubt, you know, a challenge for the women's game. And of course, in many of the, the clubs have got third party agreements with grounds and you've got to factor, factor all that in as well, which probably mm. people don't appreciate sort of how complex it is to try and juggle around ground availability when the men might be playing the best slot etc but it's really really important that we get those big games yeah I suppose away from away from the men's Premier League Will this give you more power to negotiate these kind of things not just with clubs we're recording this on a Wednesday morning uh, in, in front of me I've got today's Champions League fixtures in the Women's Champions League Barcelona Manchester City kicks off in five minutes yeah. It's 11.25 in the morning. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> somebody tell me how 
the Women's Champions League has Barcelona and Manchester City at half 11, Chelsea Wolfsburg at four, Paris Saint-Germain-Lyon at five, and then Bayern Munich's game with Rosengard at six. I mean, how on earth does that work? Yeah, I asked a a journalist this morning, actually, and um, she thought they'd been scheduled that way because of... um... The, the country, the clubs flying in and out on the same day in terms of COVID and all of the sort of restrictions and challenges around. I know, that obviously, next year, completely new format for UEFA Women's Championship League. Nadine, who's the head of women's football, yeah. UEFA is doing a brilliant job developing um, the Champions League. Obviously, it goes to group stages. We'll have three teams in it next year. I think it will be they're centralising the rights. I think it will, it will look and feel very different and I think you know that'll be a big step forward for it but yeah of course I was sitting there today thinking I really want to see those games I start looking over the top of the computer people know I'm watching the game in the background (laughs) (laughs) we can see it in your reflection in your glasses don't worry Kelly (laughs) it does highlight though Beck that for all this is a really positive step forward there are still a, there are still a lot of challenges yeah. to be negotiated. Yeah, and because you know football is an ecosystem, and all of the ecosystem has to work together. So, as Kelly mentioned, you know, two of those matches that you mentioned, they're not even being played in either of the countries where they're coming from. So, Wolfsburg and uh, I think Man City as well, and Barcelona—they're all traveling uh, for those matches to find the neutral ground, and that's obviously a COVID-related issue. Um, but when it's not COVID-related, you still have issues of pitch scheduling um, because, again, it's football has been built for men's teams in most countries, so you're always trying to find those slots, and it's—it's it's just really hard. And, and those challenges, you know, to grow the game and find those opportunities in a market that's already been built. And so you want to take it aside and build your new market, but you still have to work within the parameters of what's there and the restrictions that are there. So yeah, there's, there's, there's certainly definitely things that still need to be worked out. And one of them I I was sort of wondering about was the production as well, you know, the production values and, and how much they're investing in that because you know, for as much as I think the FA player is absolutely fantastic because you can see any match you want to, it's still with like one to maybe four cameras max. And for me, that, you know, perpetuates that perception that the quality of the, the sport is lower. And it appears like that because if you don't have super slow cameras and, you know, a 32 camera plan, then it does look slower and it does look less skillful and it does look you know, as though the players aren't as fit. And so I I think that's an interesting topic as well. And that's definitely not a knock on the FA because it it makes sense to grow the game and to give more exposure. But, you know, how you do that now moving forward when it's become more professional, where there's more money injected into it is is also really important. It's really sort of a question about what people do with this money. So what we often find when clubs come up from the EFL, so the Premier League, for example, from the Championships, the Premier League, if they haven't been there for a while, they, they get hit with a bill. To, to add in production around the ground. They have to put in a bigger media room. They sometimes have to fix their, their floodlights because Sky mm-hmm. want consistency of product. They, want, they yeah. want the football to look cinematic. They want it to look great. So following on from Beck's point about production values, number of cameras, but just, just the show, the theatre as well. And I, I, I know there's been some issues with pitch, pitch quality, you know, cancelled games. So, there, so this money, where is it going? How much of it is going to be kind of reinvested in the product, the televisual products? Yep, broadcast readiness. Um, we did an audit with Sky, with the grounds. Um, we identified what we need to put in place in terms of Sky spec around the number of cameras, etc. We've we're funding that through the cost of sales of the deal. So um, we're making sure we slice it off the top to make sure that every ground, in terms of the uplifting cameras and and power and technical things that uh, there are people better qualified to explain than me, um, we've got that all, all, all sorted and done. Um, we've got pitch covers in the cost of sales as well, so that where we've got concerns, we know there's you know significant rain coming and we've got concerns about getting one of our Sky or BBC games away. We've got pitch covers in, they have them in the Men's FA Cup as well. That is done. The pitch improvements, we're testing the pitches three times a season, working with the clubs on, on better ground maintenance. But the big change will be the work we're doing with, with um, Football Foundation, the FSIF, where we've got a sort of multi-million pounds of investment over the next two to three years in pitch quality, particularly ideally sort of deso pitches so that those pitches are better can take 
can take the games and, and can take the weather because um, we've got to get these. This is such an opportunity. We know we've got to get these games away. So um, so all of that's in play at the moment to make sure that we've got better pitches and, and that we're ready broadcast-wise. It's interesting we've gone down that line because there was, uh, I think, Kelly, you made a comment earlier about mainstream. And actually, I was going to ask you both and, and maybe Bex first that, going mainstream has lots of positives are there any negatives to going mainstream and actually quality of coverage is a prime example of you've you've if you're going mainstream you've got to get that right as a prime example are there any others that would worry about it to use that word going mainstream i used to organize the the women's world cups at fifa and we we organized some of those tournaments that went on big big broadcasters around the world from papua new guinea or from you know some parts of costa rica that where the infrastructure wasn't you know, that reliable, let's say. So even even things like the backup generators, you know, extremely costly. And should your lights, you mentioned pitch lighting, should your lights go down or should one of the lights go down and, you know, part of the pitch is dark, it affects not just the game, but what's seen on TV. And there's a lot of money now that you're tied into in contracts. So, you know, should you have to, you have to do the due diligence of everything behind the scenes, you know, is the electric grid, uh, can it sustain it? Do you need to go on backup power? Um, the pitches, as you mentioned, the cameras, the operators, the production, you know, you have to have the same number of people working behind the scenes to edit and produce that that picture that comes out on the TV too. So there's an incredible amount of like an entire system, again, the ecosystem or like a chain effect that, that you know, it's not just you play and then it comes on your TV. So I mean, I'm sure Kelly has a lot more details on that, but there's certainly, yeah, there's a lot of risk when you go on to, to global television um, and, and you're in front of millions of, of viewers. Because if you mess up, <laughs> the entire world sees it. Is there <laughs> yeah, a hiding place? No, yeah, thanks, no <laughs> pressure, Kelly. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, yeah, and I'm sleeping well. That is what happens, Kelly, is that there is, there is no hiding place now. Absolutely. You know, this is an incredible opportunity, but... You know, with it comes that we need to deliver. We and the clubs, you know, need to work together to deliver, whether that's the broadcast readiness, it's getting pitches of the right quality. Um, it's getting when fans are back in, working really hard to to fill those stadiums to give the right atmosphere. You know, um, it's we've got to work together to, to deliver. It's a wonderful opportunity. And, of course, we're working flat out behind the scenes to make sure that we're all ready. You know, refereeing investment is another one. Um, you know, it's been... A tough old job isn't it it'd be a referee as they say you know but it's been the refereeing or the standard refereeing fairly or unfairly uh, depending on your view you know it's been criticized in the WSL. Casey Stoney was very critical of it at the weekend so is that is that a big job to get referees up to standard? Yeah I think it's like I think it's fair to say that the development of refereeing hasn't kept up with the pace of the Women's Super League and we've got to correct that and we've, we've side doesn't the FA and the clubs um, a significant investment which we'll announce in mid-April which looks to make sure that we give those referees the, the best opportunity the best chance to develop and we get you know the, be- the best referees that we can in place so so lots to do in that area but big plans coming up on, on how we do that because that's all part of that product and experience you know you want to you know you know we, we haven't got VAR um we're not, and even then, people don't always agree on the decisions. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, that, but, that, that know, could be a are, positive you know, or a negative. Really. They're still yeah. going to be disagreeing. Whatever we do, they're still going to be disagreeing <laughs> about decisions. We've got to invest in, and, and make sure that, you know, ideally you want those to get those game-changing decisions right and for people to be talking about the football. Um, and so we've got to do everything we can there. Yeah, the referee one is a, is a tough one because it's, like I never really even looked at refereeing as a player until I sort of got into that governing side. And then you realize actually it's, it's, it's a really tough road for them. You know, they don't get paid a lot um, from when they first come into it. They don't get a lot of feedback. They don't get a lot of support. So just, just to learn how to become a referee is, is quite a challenge. You have to really be passionate about it. And then you get yelled at, you know, every weekend guaranteed. So it, it it's, it needs more support. But Bex, the, the attention on them is going to go through the roof now. And, and this is really? these are the things I'm talking yeah. about when you go mainstream again, is is the if you're if you're refereeing a game on a Friday night on, on BBC One or BBC Two and there's yeah. three to four million people watching, if you have a shocker, then then rightly or wrongly, yeah, there's a lot coming your way. And it, in some ways that's 
it's about preparing people for what might Definitely. come their way. Yeah, you're right. It's about the right sport science support, the right psych coaching, the right development programme, the right everything that gives those referees the best chance to perform just like you would your players. And, and it's about all of that right and, and treating them as part of the elite athletes, if you like, that, that need all of that support around them. It is a big, it's going to be a big step up, you know, the visibility of it, the scrutiny. And, and therefore, it's only right for the game and for those referees um, and officials that, that we do everything we can to support them and, and say there's a big step change coming in terms of investment in that area. It's just interesting, too, because we talk about referees getting, you know, probably potentially more flack or, or at least more visibility and, and potential to get more flack. But even, you know, if you're grounds grounds people or security at, at you know, if I was watching a game even recently in the Frauenbundesliga in Germany when, you know, not long after I'd played and a dog just ran onto the pitch and like took out a player and we all laughed and we thought it was hilarious, but it was one of the top games in the league. And, you know, then if that happens when you're on TV, then what kind of security and then do people feel safe going to the games? Because, you know, is there enough security there that you can't even keep dogs off? What about streakers and all kinds of other fun things? I mean, bad things. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it, it, there's a lot more pressure on everything, I think. And, and also the clubs, you know, so and that's where I think Kelly's job is really difficult because all the clubs have different objectives. You know, they're the top ones are looking to go here and the bottom ones are potentially looking just for survival and, you know, and and to try to get all of them on board to understand that they all need to step up their game with their with their, you know, pitch maintenance, with their stadium uh, security, et cetera, et cetera. So it's um, yeah, there's a lot of knock on effects. Yeah, I wanted to come back to, although I love the dog story, so that, that, so that <laughs> clearly wasn't funny, but it is kind of funny. No, yeah. no, not funny at but all. I'm, mm-hmm, I'm, I'm, uh, we haven't got no. a plan for that. Re- re- well, you could organise it. You could release dogs at certain <laughs> times. I wanted to come back to something you said earlier about this idea, this perception maybe that's, um, you know, kind of the, the men's side of the, the club sometimes saw women's football as an empty bucket. And we know that there's been, there's been, well, basically about a million quid of per club of financial support from the men's side. I mean, it's different from, you know, from club to club, but it's about that. Do you see now, and off the back of the Barclays deal, which I, I know you mentioned, and I don't think has got enough credit, because that, that was a fantastic title sponsor deal. And now you've got a genuinely, a, a, a proper TV deal. So, so you you have the, your revenue stream sorted now. You know you've got when we look at financial accounts for the clubs, it's you know your broadcast deal, your your, your commercial sponsorships, your gate receipts. Well, there you go. You, we're building a proper business now. Do you see that support winding down? Are we going to see the women's club, the women's teams now properly stand on their own two feet and become? Well, you know, dare, dare I say revenue sensors, you know, do they, do they are they going to start contributing? It's coming. I think what's happened previously is that the men's club have been the big chunk of the investment and there wasn't a clear strategy on how we were going to grow the professional women's game and grow revenue and ultimately taper down. Uh, and I think that was, you know, when you when I went in, came into this job in, in 2018, and before we did the Barclays deal, you know, they were my sort of early chats. I can't, they can't see how this changes and you know obviously we've built the strategy out we brought Barclays in as title partner we've got this new domestic deal we've been selling overseas deals and, and come back to that in a sec and and we've been talking to the clubs about you know what rights they have and they you know some of them have done some significant deals now and of course the value of those club rights will increase significantly because of the huge audiences the new partnership and, and the domestic, the overseas deals we're doing, but particularly the domestic deal. So those sort of foundations, I suppose, are in place by which the clubs can grow revenues. We're also sort of building our business plan out to 2033. So we're doing some work at the moment on trying to sort of forecast what the future might look like as part of a, the future ownership of the Women's Super League and the Women's Championship. And again, it would, I suppose, give, give investors and, and club in, clubs are investors in this, give investors confidence that there are, you know, revenues down the line that, that, that can offset the investment up front that's coming from the men's game. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the, the foundations are there, but, you know, it's not sustainable yet. So, you know, Chelsea are not going to compete in the Champions League and City with the revenue that we're distributing from the centre, but that will grow, you know, and I think we, they can see now that 
that that will grow because you know we've got Barclays, we've got this new deal, we're selling overseas rights. We expect those values to grow. Have you sold some of those already, the overseas rights? And where is the interest? Yep, we've um, so we've sold in. Um, so we're working with Pitch Pitch International, um, yep. who are doing doing those deals for us. We've sold um, in uh, in the Nordics, in South America. Uh, USA with NBC, Canada, um, Optus in Australia, uh, New Zealand. So territories across <laughs> <laughs> a number down. of territories uh, across the world. New Zealand, Spark in New Zealand. Yes. Uh, so yeah, so quite a few. Um, I think what what this gives us this new deal, obviously with a regular appointment to view, increased spec, and um, that we've talked about uh, the number of live game of live games or games with that high spec that we can really kind of ramp up now that that overseas strategy or overseas rights strategy um, and continue to to sell in other territories and obviously we know we've got more games to get out there so so you know we're, we're expected to build on that work that we've done looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Bex, I'm, you know, obviously one of your hats is, is Copper 90. Mm. And um, I mentioned at the beginning the FA player element, which maybe Kelly might want to explain a little bit more about as part of this deal. But, mm. you know, when I, when I look at my kids, the way they are consuming yeah. sport, football now, it's on, I mean, the, the, the television is something for me and my wife. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I don't think they know what a television is. It's it's the, yeah. well, it's maybe to play a game on, but it's certainly not right. to watch watch you know <laughs> broadcast events. Hmm. Now, I was I was looking at how the N the American League has done this, and they've got this yeah. sort of partnership with Twitch. Is this a growth area? Is this something that? The, the, where the next audience is for, for women's football. Yeah, massively, massively. And it's a great question. I mean, the, the NWSL deal, I love, um, they did CBS and then Twitch. So everything X US and Canada is um, free to air on, on Twitch, which also brings in, brings in that whole other um, element and in industry of gaming, which is really sort of blowing up as well. Um, so when we look at where you know kids are consuming most of their content, it is mostly on their phones, and and the modern fan is definitely watching sports in very different ways, and and more conversational as well, rather than sitting down for ninety minutes and watching a game, you know, by themselves or with with friends. It's really sort of in WhatsApp chats or over Twitter or what's happening or memes or all of these different things that are that are going on. So there's there's definitely a massive potential, and I'm I'm one hundred percent sure the FA has thought and is developing that digital way as well, which I'll let I'll let Kelly talk about more. But um, the FA players is an incredible sort of start with that. They've already, you know, started different shows on there, um, the different highlight packages, the content, the interviews with different players. And, and I think that's where, for me, the women's game has always lived on digital spaces. It's never been allowed into the TV broadcast area. So it has been born and grown through the digital space. So arguably it even is more comfortable there. The fans are already there. You know, the, those supporters, those fan groups, those platforms that are for women's football have all started there and grown there. So there's, there's a massive potential um, because it's already been started there. And just, just one other comment was that was really interesting when I was working at FIFA was when I first started talking to some of the lawyers that work in the TMS, the transfer system, they said that actually they didn't need the transfer system until the broadcast money started coming in. And that was when FIFA all of a sudden 
became what it is today is because of all the broadcasts. And that, that I thought was really interesting that all of a sudden off the back of that, then the transfer system had to be built and all of these, you know, club compensation, all of the different regulations in football have been built and been a trickle down from directly broadcast money. And so now you see where the women's game is at and the TMS is already set up only as of a couple of years, actually. Um, we're in a really good place now, as Kelly mentioned, that it can become more sustainable. So just on, on that, because that's a really interesting point where you talk about the men's transfer system. Hmm. I sit on the board of the Women in Sport charity and I was talking to our, I won't go into the full conversation with our director of policy recently, but there was a discussion about uh, male and female sport parity and wanting to be the same but also if male sport doesn't necessarily get things right mm. why would you want to do why would you 100%. want to do the same in the female 100%. market and what struck me about when i heard this deal i mean there are lots of things that struck me about this deal and and you've made the point the money will come in but just because the money is coming in doesn't mean that you have to follow the model by which male football has gone down. Because there is a lot of male football, a lot about elite male football that the majority of people find distasteful, to say yeah. to say the least. And therefore, this is a, this gives you a really good opportunity to do something different whilst being in the same game. Would that be fair? 100%. And I'm going to let Kelly answer that. But I do think that that's why it's so great to have people like Kelly in these positions, because they understand the game. They've, under, they've seen the growth of it. They understand the history of it. But they also have access to and work with some of the top people on the men's side as well. So you can, you can sort of sit in that middle role and bring in the best of the men's game and then also create new deals like the CBS Twitch deal, like BBC and Sky, like paid behind a paid wall and, uh, you know, um, public as well. So 100%, I totally 1000% agree. And we, we had Lucy Bronze and Farrah Williams on our podcast, like shameless plug, but they, t they said exactly that. They said, why are we comparing? Why are we constantly yeah. being compared to the men? It just doesn't make sense. You, you don't compare, you don't say put a boxer in with, with AJ you don't like compare anyone with Usain Bolt. You just you just appreciate them for the different sports. Absolutely. They're a different market. So go at them in the way that the market has been created, where the audience sits, you know, everything that that surrounds that market, which I think I believe um the FA is doing brilliantly, but you know, I I've known Kelly for a while, so I know how much she does behind the scenes as well. Kelly. It just makes sense, doesn't it, to sort of learn from the men's game, to take take the best bits. Um, but you know, I think it'd be a real shame if if um, you know the, the women's game's got an incredible history uh, and it's got great values, um, and I really hope that the game doesn't lose those and the things that makes it special. You know the way that the players conduct themselves. Um, you know the closeness to the fans in all the things that sort of make it make it special. Um, and I don't sort of get drawn into. I'm a massive men's football fan. So I'm not criticising men's game at all, but I think there is some unique qualities in, in the women's game um, that, you know, I, I hope hold um, and, and, and continue as the game grows and commercialises. And I think, you know, going back to the previous bit about, you know, digital and how important that is in the younger generation, absolutely. You know, so part, part of the deal is about, you know, in-game clips and highlights and, and, and for us and the clubs to really grow their social channels because we know that younger audiences you know, the older audiences are more likely to be on linear watching live games. The younger audiences are more likely to, to be watching the highlights or, or the clips and, and the best bits. And so making sure that we've got that spread across linear and social, you know, is, is a big part of our strategy to make sure we take that younger audience. But, but coming back to that fundamental bit about differentiation, absolutely. You know, let's let's let's. Let's do what's right for the women's game and um, and innovate where we can. One thing on the broadcast deal, because um, this podcast has a, tra a tradition of um, comparing something to the American market at some point every every week. So this is this is my weekly comparison to the American market. Mark, why do you even and care about Americans? Well, <laughs> well, let's see. No, you, no, you, 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 you let me know whether this is relevant <laughs> or not. When the deal was announced, I read the BBC Sport press release and the Sky Sports press release. I'm not asking you to comment on those press releases, but I think the BBC Sport release mentioned Sky once and the Sky Sport press release didn't mention the BBC at all. Okay. So 
NBC, CBS, ESPN, Fox, when they cover the NFL, they point people to where other games are on different channels. So the Super Bowl is on rotation. If the Super Bowl is on CBS and NBC have the NFC championship game, they will tell you that the that the game is on CBS. There are there are whilst they are proud of their own companies, they do tend to point people in the direction because the NFL have basically gone, you're representing our sport, sell it and and tell people where they can watch it. I wonder whether this going again to giving you opportunities to do something different is to say to them all, all right, you've had that live game. The next live game is on Sky and you can watch it at this time. And by the way, there's this on the FA player and whatever digital deals come. A, is that fair enough for talking about Americans in that sense? First of all, Bex, is that all right? Yeah, yeah. And and secondly, is that doable? Because this is about your product, isn't it, Kelly? It's not about the broadcast. It's about getting eyes on your on your competition and getting people through the turnstiles. And we all have a part to play. Yeah, I'll leave, I'll leave Bex to answer the question about you. You can carry on the chat without me about whether you should be talking about Americans <laughs> or not. But in terms of, I'm only half American. The Sky okay. BBC, <laughs> I, I, it's too early to say whether, how much mm. they'll cross-promote each other's What I will say is that we will absolutely, I think, you know, the three partners, if you like the league or the FA stroke league, BBC and Sky, we you know we will work together because the more we promote the women's Super League, and the more the bigger the audience is, it's a win-win for everybody. So actually, you know the BBC partnership is is fantastic really for Sky because huge audiences are going to get exposure to the women's Super League who may not have watched it before, may not know what quality it is, and then and that will ultimately can only drive audiences to then watch more on Sky, um, so, and vice versa. So I think, you know, it may absolutely make sense that, that we work together and we will, you know, collaborate together to make sure that we get, get the best um, across those, you know, across Sky and Beam. So, but, you know, we'll have to work that through. I mean, I, I personally have always just enjoyed the women's game <laughs> because it's community-based. It, it really has always felt like, you know, even when I was playing in the German league and I had some teammates playing in the Swedish league or, vice versa, it felt like you're always supporting each other because whereas on the men's, there's this massive cake and everyone's trying to like fight for some crumbs. Actually in the women's, we're still building the cake. We're still trying to find the ingredients and bake it. And you need each other to help bake that cake or, you know, create a market that's even worth trying to compete um, within. So I, I think that's where still the women's game is. And I know that, you know, different federations talk to different leagues, talk to each other around the world and I'm involved in different projects of, of that knowledge sharing, you know, how can we maybe join different leagues in, in Europe for more exposure broadly, you know, different types of sponsorship packages where they sponsor across different entities and that's great for everybody. So it, because it's still in a developmental phase, which Kelly said that that community spirit and ways of working is so, is so vital. And normally I see that. Kelly, you, you, you mentioned something a moment ago where you, you, you talked about your, the business plan, right? Which is up till 2033. And then in your last answer, you, you said the league slash FA, right? Ah, you can see where I'm going. Um, <laughs> yes, I can. We're not very That's subtle, okay. like right. So, um, for how long will it be FA slash league, or have you now proven that you can do it? You know, you can, the FA can do a rights deal. Not the, the status quo is fine. Hopefully, people knew that through the, the amount of revenue generated through the FA, the men's FA Cup, particularly. I don't know how long. I think the FA's view hasn't changed in that that we are here to run it until we agree what is the best ownership structure to ensure that the Women's Super League and the Women's Championship thrives and is sustainable in the long term. It it doesn't run the professional men's leagues. It doesn't envisage long term. It will run the women's professional leagues. We're going through a process at the moment with the clubs and the board to talk through the options of Premier League have publicly said that they're interested. We know of our private equity interest. We could create it as a new co in its own right, and so that it makes a deci- every decision is made in absolutely the best and only you know only in the interests of, of the women's professional game because it's got a laser focus. 
So there's different options on the table. We're kind of we're still working those through. And, and part of that is agreeing when is the right timeline to transition out. I think it's inevitable the league will come out of the FA. But I think it's just sort of too early to say what it comes out into and, and when. Just a final thing on all of on all of this. What it's always the little things that strike me as making the difference. For all the big announcements and the money and stuff, it's always the little things that I think show the signs of progress. And I don't know, I've maybe got a couple of examples, which is, you know, when I'm doing around the grounds or I'm doing a, a score night or, or Saturday afternoons, the, my video printer has women's Super League goal scorers on it, as well as the Premier mm. League and the EFL. So, so when you're doing around the grounds, when Frank Kirby scores for Chelsea, it's there, mm. and you 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 do your video printer in the in the, exactly the same way, or clicking on the Sky Sports app just to me go to try and find a quote, and their their top thing on the Sky Sports app is the team news for that Barcelona Manchester City Champions League quarterfinal. Mm. It's those it's those little things and that build up for me, I think, that shows. The progress yeah would that be fair we were like that at work um this is before covid when we we're actually all in the office together as opposed to all on teams and zoom but we got so excited about the transfer window deadline that sky <laughs> had put in the transfer deadline day for the women's game we all huddled well, around the team even though transfers <laughs> were because they're coming through our office we were still yeah. <laughs> not there's going to be any surprises for the team but just the fact that you know for all those years I sat there and watched transfer deadline day in the men's game wondering if my team would sign anybody and waiting for Harry Redknapp to come up and all those <laughs> that happened in the men's game to finally have our own it, it, you're right in some ways it's those little little markers that make you suddenly think oh you know we're really moving on you know, it's also interesting because people say, well, there's no interest in women's football. But in this country, if you live and I've only lived here for three years now, but football's everywhere. You don't have a choice like it, it comes at you. You know what's going on because it's everywhere. Whereas, you know, and I think that then makes you more familiar with it, with it which then makes you somehow drawn into it, whether you like it or not. Whereas on the women's, you don't have that same opportunity and just yeah, that familiarity effect doesn't happen in the women's game because there's just a lack of visibility. So like you say, all those push notifications now coming through start people feeling a little bit more comfortable having, you know, a Frank Kirby come up or a Karen Carney talk about, you know, the men's game. And, and the more comfortable people are, then I think there's there's a bigger scope for them to actually like yep. it. <laughs> <laughs> that seems a very good place uh, to end it. Uh, thank you both for your time thank this you afternoon. Much. Kelly, well done on the deal again. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. That's it. Don't forget you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. Go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to take advantage of this special 40% discount. Theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. We're back next week. Thanks for listening. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code The Athletic, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.